My Black Counts is a podcast series produced by the Center for Community Engagement, Environmental Justice, and Health, with assistance from WYPR. Hello, everyone. Welcome to My Block Counts, an environmental justice podcast dedicated to helping people know so they can grow and help things flow within their communities. My name is Dr. Jacoby McGill Wilson. In today's episode, we have the pleasure of being joined by Vivek Maru, the visionary leader and CEO of Namate, an organization committed to empowering marginalized communities around the globe. You know, I met Vivek several years ago when uh, Namate was interested in doing some U.S.-based work. And as I said before in the introduction, they do a lot of international environmental justice work. The work that Vivek is doing, I think, is very groundbreaking, very transformative. And I want the audience to really you know, hear about his mission, right, and, and his message about how you do this work. So Vivek, can you tell us about your journey and how you became the CEO of Namate? Yes, I can, Sakobi Wilson. But first, just to say thank you to both you and Valkyria for this rich conversation and also just your commitment and energy and the work you do, each of you does in our communities every single day. It's an honor to be on. I'm actually dialing in from Sierra Leone, which is a small country in West Africa, south of Guinea, north of Libya, right on bulge of West Africa. And this is the place that I cut my teeth on the work that I have been doing ever since. I first moved here 20 years ago, 2003. And it was the end of an 11-year brutal civil war that tore this place apart. There were terrible brutalities that happened. The fabric of the society was tore up. Institutions were devastated. And there was a consensus among people who lived here that why, why did that war happen in the first place? That among the root causes of the war were a breakdown in justice, that corruption and abuse and exploitation, those were the things that had sent people to the bush to pick up guns and do unspeakable things to their own. And there was an interest as the war was closing to try to do something to support people when they face injustice in their daily lives. Sierra Leone wouldn't go back there again. I was just spent the last few days with someone named Daniel Sisse, who I've been working with since I first came here. And he called it a never again campaign. Like we need to do something so that we don't ever again get into the kind of conflict that we had. But it was an open question what that would look like because there were only 100 lawyers in the country at the time total. And out of the 100, more than 90 were in Freetown, in the capital. And so if you go to the countryside in Sierra Leone, even a rich person would struggle to get an attorney or, or a lawyer. And so what would something like legal support look like in that context? I sort of came at the invitation of some domestic human rights groups that were trying to answer that question. It was initially like a fellowship for a year, but I ended up staying for four and learning the language and falling in love with the place. And I've been coming back ever since. And what we ended up experimenting with was what we call community paralegals. And if you've never heard of community paralegals, they are organizers. Different from the paralegals you might have heard of who tend to be in the back office of a law firm and sort of helping with the paperwork, 
These are organizers who are rooted in their own communities, who carry knowledge of law, and they can offer a bridge between the former promises of law on the one hand and real life on the other hand. And we did not make this up. Uh, it goes back to the 1950s in South Africa during apartheid. There were community paralegals. They were often in ANC offices. The African National Congress was the sort of freedom movement. And they were often based in ANC offices. And they were helping people to navigate all these rules. Because apartheid, there were so many rules about where you could go, where you could work, where you could study, what pass you had to have in your pocket. And the paralegals would help people to sort of defend themselves against those rules and navigate them. And ultimately, they were a really crucial infrastructure that helped with the movement to, to, to obtain freedom in 1994. And one of the first things we did, I, I had a partner, Simeon Karoma, a young Sierra Leone lawyer. Two of us went down to South Africa. We spent several weeks with community paralegals there. to learning about how they were managing this to help people access justice. And this was years after freedom. The paralegals continue to this day in South Africa to help people to try to make good on progressive promise of the South African Constitution and other legislation. And we went back to Sierra Leone and we tried to figure out what a community paralegal model would look like in that context. And to our surprise, we found that with a little bit of knowledge of law, and if you combine that knowledge with organizing, people could squeeze justice out of a broken system. A mom could get child support from her deadbeat husband. Government workers who were denied six years of back wages could get the pay that they were due. Six villages in the south of Sierra Leone whose land had been ravaged by a mining company, they could, combining knowledge of law and organizing, they were managed to get that mining company to come back and fill pits that it had left empty, to repair a bridge that it had broken, to compensate community members for crops that they lost. We didn't win all the time, but we were surprised to find that people power plus legal power can squeeze justice out of a global system. So I've basically been doing that one way or another ever since. We started Namathi in 2012, but it's really building on that foundation from Sierra Leone. That's powerful that this work is rooted in the work of Sierra Leone, but the work, you know, is really founded in the work against apartheid in South Africa. And you said yes. people power plus legal power. Just the audience, once you hear that, people power plus legal power. Remember, the, again, the theme of the symposium is people power and politics. Thank you for that, Vivek. So <laughs> people power and politics. There's one to make sure the the audience understands the power of people, the power of one person, the power of one vote. Absolutely. Understand these legal tools that you have, mm -hmm. you know, that you can use, right? And so Namate's mission is to empower people, as you said, Vivek, to know, use, and shape the laws that affect them. So you talked about, you know, this work in Sierra Leone, but can you talk more about your work in other parts of the world and the challenges your partners are, are experiencing when it comes to unfair legal systems? and those impacts. Can you share what some of these other stories of what you are doing personally as a leader of Namate and what your Namate team has been doing around the world? Yes, sir, definitely. So Namate today, we've been around since 2012. We have built deeply rooted teams that are doing this work of combining law and organizing, combining legal power, people power in six countries. Here in Sierra Leone still, in Kenya, in East Africa, in Mozambique, which is Southeast Africa, in Myanmar and India. My family comes from India. Myanmar is a country to the east of India, but sort of between India and China. And then at home where I live in the United States uh, with partners like you two, Wakiria and Satobi, 
we work on environmental justice issues in the mid-Atlantic. So those six places, we have deeply rooted teams. And then the other thing that we do is we convene something called the Grassroots Justice Network. And that is the largest community of justice advocates in the world. We have members from 175 countries. They represent over 3,500 organizations. And it is open to everyone. So just like the symposium, it's it's free to join. And I really would invite all the listeners to come build with us. We are trying to build a community and a movement that is dedicated to putting the power of law into the hands of people and using that power to tackle some of the grave challenges that we face. Environmental collapse, deep, gross inequality, democracy itself is under threat everywhere we work. And, and we are trying to take those challenges on together. Just to get a little concrete about what that looks like, in India, for example, community paralegals help people who are affected by industrial pollution to seek practical remedies to environmental injustice. So, for example, getting a cement factory to comply with air pollution regulations so it's not poisoning people who live next door, or getting a mine to stop encroaching unlawfully on people's grazing land or to stop poisoning rivers, stop dumping tailings into the to the river that flows through people's farmland. And community paralegals that we have worked with in India have successfully resolved hundreds of cases like those. Unfortunately, our work in India is on pause right now because the government came after partner organization that we work with. It's called Center for Policy Research as part of a broader crackdown on civil society that's happening. So that's just a reminder of how dangerous this work can be and how if you do challenge power, power push back. To give you another example here in Sierra Leone, I was just today with communities who are affected by mining operations in the south of the country. And we work with communities to take on over 300 cases of environmental injustice here. And everywhere we work, we try to build from grassroots specific struggles, community by community, towards fundamental shifts in laws and systems. Because we know that if we just take it on one case at a time, one instance of pollution at a time, it's going to be a very, very long road. Uh, it can be overwhelming. You know, it can be like trying to empty the ocean with a small cup. And so what we are trying to do everywhere we work is look at the ocean itself and take on the root causes that are making the injustice possible. And, and here in Sierra Leone, we had a breakthrough last year, which was really the culmination of a decade or more of grassroots struggles, we were able collectively to pass a new law called the Customary Land Rights Act, which is one of the most progressive laws on land, environmental, climate justice in the world. Among other things, it grants every community across the country the right to free prior informed consent over any industrial activity that happens on their territory. And that is a principle that grows out of the indigenous people's movement. And it's simple. It basically means that, like, I should be able to make a decision about what happens in my neighborhood. And unfortunately, that is not how the world works, not in Baltimore, not in Delaware, not in most countries in the world. It's the government that makes permitting decisions, not communities. And this law in Sierra Leone changes that. And so one of the exciting things that's happening in Sierra Leone now is we got the law in the books and now we're breathing life into it. Paralegals and communities are invoking those progressive provisions to try to make sure that they are implemented nationwide. Those are some examples of, of what we're up to. I could speak more about the challenges to Kobe, which are many, if, if you'd like, but yeah. If you want to, I mean, I think just to, to chime in real quick, 
I think it's important just for folks to, those of us uh, are in our audience who may not be as familiar with some of these issues and around the world, you see parallels when it comes to land right in the U.S., mm -hmm. zoning issues, how zoning gets weaponized against people, how mm -hmm. for some reason the land of folks of color is less valued than land of their white counterparts. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so they end up being targets for environmental hazards, right? And, and you just made an important point. You got this one of the most progressive laws around land in the world on the books, but you got to do the implementation. You got to fight for it to actually work. So mm -hmm. the, getting it on the books is just one part of the work, everybody. So to make a democracy work, it takes work. It was hard to do phase one, right, Vivek? But now you got to do phase two to make sure mm -hmm. you don't lose from what you did in phase yeah. one, right? Mm -hmm. That's one of those challenges. You want to speak more about the challenges that your communities that you're serving are having? Oh, I'm just going to say, you were talking about parallels. I see so many parallels, bro. I mean, I... I travel all over the world to contexts that are so diverse, you know, so different from each other, different languages, different cultures, different economies, different legal systems. And yet I see so many parallels, so many commonalities in the way environmental harms are concentrated in communities with less wealth, less power, communities who face discrimination. Huge imbalances of power between those communities and the ones who are actually making decisions or driving what they call development. On the other hand, I see parallels on the community side in terms of what people want. I mean, it's not that complicated. People want to be able to govern the places they inhabit. They want to be able to make decisions about what happens in their neighborhoods. And what I hear increasingly in this moment of dire climate crisis, where it was 150 degrees in the Middle East last week, there are heat waves where you're sitting, Sokobi, in Maryland and across the world as we speak. We are in a climate emergency. What I hear from communities facing harm is that they want to not be dumped on anymore with the things that are causing climate change, the deforestation, the, the pollution. And they, instead, they want to be part of the solution. They want to help lead a transition to a more sustainable economy. And I hear that here in Sierra Leone. I hear that in Baltimore. I hear that in Myanmar. And so I just wanted to emphasize that point that you made, that I see deep commonalities across such a diverse world. This struggle for climate and environmental justice, it is something that people around the world share. And I think to really achieve what we are looking for, we need a coming together, community by community across our borders. That's powerful, Vic. Thank you for that. And thank you for sharing it with the audience. You said, regardless of the geography, the language, right, the legal systems, the economic systems, you see these parallels. That's why environmental justice is global, folks. You see folks being discriminated against. You're seeing people being marginalized, invisibilized because of power, because of fossil fuels, because of greed, okay? And you know, I mentioned the 17 principles of environmental justice, and was Vic is saying, everyone should have the right to govern themselves, the right to clean air and clean water. We're talking about basic amenities. In the U.S. context, you're talking about the Constitution, right? Inalienable rights. And so we're talking about how we get this done and how Namate, you know, leads in, in, on these efforts. So when you think about all the diverse communities that you, that you work with, Vivek, how do you prioritize and strategize where the focus Right. There's so many, as you said, there's so many issues. There's, 
you know, yeah. I like to say there's so much need in the world, right? There's so much need. And, you know, I do a lot of U.S.-based work and I feel mm-hmm. overwhelmed and overstretched mm-hmm. every day. So how do you prioritize and strategize where you, where you focus? I'll just confess to Kobe that I also feel overwhelmed sometimes, like staring at the face of the challenges we have, the challenges that communities are going through. It's a lot. And they're all interconnected, whether it's poverty or denial of basic services or land grabbing or pollution. They, there are connections between them. And that does pose a challenge for anyone who's trying to do something useful. It's like, where do you begin? What do you focus on? It's not, not, not an easy choice. We've been on an interesting evolution. When I first started here in Sierra Leone in 03, it was right after the war and there were so little services of any kind that the community paralegals, they didn't focus on one issue or another. They just tried to respond to whatever people came to them with. So it might be abuse of children at school. It could be gender-based violence. It could be land grabs, it could be pollution. And the paralegals really, we, we tried our best to respond to whatever issues the communities brought to us rather than choosing issues. And we, we stuck with that for years. And, and we felt like we don't want to impose. We want to choose what to focus on. We want to try to be responsive. Over time, we fought to expand the presence of community parents and actually managed to get a law passed in 2012 that recognized the role that community paralegals play and called for a community paralegal in every chiefdom of the country, uh, which was a big deal. And actually, I should point out that in the United States, this kind of work is criminalized in many places. So we need to fight for that recognition at home in the United States. There's something called unauthorized practice of law regulation. I don't know if you've heard of those rules, UPL for short, unauthorized practice of law. And what it means, which is crazy, is that if me and you are neighbors to Kobe in most states of the union, I can tell you what the law says. Like I, I, can, I can educate you about your rights, but if I am not a qualified lawyer, for me to brainstorm with you how to solve a practical problem that you face using the law, that is a crime. Uh, it's a violation of unauthorized practice of law. So, which is just to say that this idea of putting the power of law in people's hands, it's contentious. It's running against the grain of the way law is operated in society. And it's also running against a monopoly that lawyers have held over the law in many, many countries. So that was a big deal to pass that law here in 2012 in um, in, in Sierra Leone, and, and there are similar parallel efforts to decriminalize and recognize legal empowerment in the United States right now. Once we got that law passed and we started to build a bigger ecosystem of paralegals, we realized that there was a gap, which is there were foreign companies being invited into this country, left and right, who were coming and putting up big projects like 75,000 acres of rainforest being replaced by an oil pump plantation with a lease for 50 years and the rent being $2 an acre per year. These are enormous consequences. People involved, the lease agreements were often signed without the consent of the people who lived in these places. The companies were almost always from elsewhere, Europe, China, what have you. The imbalances of power were massive. And we saw that there was no one who was able to support communities to deal in an empowered way with those kinds of land deals, those kinds of massive industrial developments, which were often extremely extractive. They feel, unfortunately, like a continuity of what has happened to Africa for many centuries, which is taking the wealth 
out of this place, sometimes taking the human beings out of this place without actually leading to the growth or benefit of the of the people and the land that make up this place. Um, and so from then on, we started focusing the Namathi paralegals on land and environmental justice in particular, because we felt like we've grown an ecosystem, there's paralegals working on a number of different issues. This is a big gap. And it's tough to be effective on, on these problems if we're also trying to help people get child support or, or help people deal with back unpaid wages or the laws are complicated, the, the corporations are complicated. And so focusing is going to allow us to be more impactful. And we have found that to be the case. It was the 10 years of focusing on land environment that eventually culminated in that law that passed last year. So similar stories elsewhere where we're looking for an issue where there is a gap, where we can add value, and we have found that focusing can help deepen your impact. One last note I'll say, and I'll pass it back to you, Brother Shakobi, is that in our global network, the top two issues that our network members report focusing on, and these are people, again, from 175 countries, they're working on all the justice issues you could imagine under the sun, but the top two issues that they report focusing on, one is gender justice, and then the other one is land, environment, climate. And I, I think that is a sign of the times that we are living in, that the decisions about what happens to the land, the water, the air, the earth, they are so high stakes. We are in such a moment of climate emergency. They're happening in the context of such acute imbalances of power. And so to pursue justice today, for many of us, is to pursue to land, environmental, and climate justice. I think that is at the heart of what it means to be building just society in this moment. That's powerful. Thank you. You talked about gender justice, land, environment, climate justice. You talked about, you know, this extractive economy that was capitalism. You talked about the history as a descendant of an enslaved African, right, myself, mm -hmm. and the history of colonization and how you have a new form of resource colonization on the continent and how that impacts the that diaspora, but in other parts of the world, how people get displaced and impact those diasporas, right? Why we have so many climate refugees in the world? Because of fights over resources, right? And that leads to upheaval and people get displaced, looking for jobs, looking for opportunity. So I think, it's, I mean, again, more parallels, again, across these various diasporas that get dispersed across the world because of resource colonization because of environmental oppression, and you know the term I like to use, because of environmental slavery, international environmental slavery, whether it be the garbage wars, where we send our uh, e-waste to South Asia, or what's happened to farmers, as you mentioned, in the loss of their livelihoods, grazing communities, and loss of their livelihoods, folks who are dealing with oil extraction in Nigeria, you know, individuals who are dealing with the loss of the rainforest, you know, in South America, all these things affect audience of says it's connected again. So we're talking about again people, power, and politics, pollution politics, oil politics, water politics, land politics, resource politics, gender politics, folks. Just want to reiterate those points that Vivek had mentioned. So I want to transition Vivek and talk about magic. A little bit. I like to say the Mid-Atlantic Environmental Justice Coalition. Well, Kira said <laughs> environmental justice. You got the Mid-Atlantic Justice Coalition. But tell us about magic and what magic means to this movement. Absolutely, 100%. And I appreciate what you just said. I was just going to mention before I, before I get into magic is that 
you were saying that you're a descendant of slaves who were brought from Africa. Some of them might have been brought from here in Sierra Leone, where I'm calling from. I'm the child of immigrants from India, from a very poor part of India called Kutch, which was excluded and colonized and marginalized. And then in the last 20 years has been turned into a sacrifice zone. It's home to two of the biggest coal plants on earth and an industrial zone where there are so many factories that have taken up the water out of the ground. There are places where it hurts to breathe. And I think that experience of being part of a diaspora and part of a community that has had to move in part because of injustice, that has been part of my inspiration to try to weave together these different places that I have had the privilege to get to know and be a part of. And foremost among them is the Mid-Atlantic region, which is where I live. That's where my wife and sons are. I live in Washington, D.C., and Sokovi really building on actually the history of this symposium that we're talking about right now, which goes back to, when was the first year you did it? 2011, 2010? 2012. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's been, been over a decade. And man, it was a lot of, there was a lot of energy. I always remember one of my uh, first mm-hmm. mentees, Rebecca Rear, who's now with the uh, Berlin League of Conference yes. Votes. She said, I yeah. love Rebecca. She reminded me, like, there was so much energy, Dr. Wilson, at that symposium. Mm-hmm. It was like, mm-hmm. wow. Then uh, Bernice Miller-Travis always make, makes me feel humble when she says this. Like, yeah, that symposium was really powerful. And we mm-hmm. needed you to, to connect mm-hmm. the dots for us in, the, in this region. So out of that first symposium, it was myself, Bernice, I think Leslie Fields, Mustafa mm-hmm. Ali, and also Jalon White Newsom. We sort of pulled together the DMV EJ Coalition, which was mm-hmm. a coalition to bring together folks uh, grassroots groups, uh, advocates, green groups, uh, other uh, stakeholders to work together to address environmental justice issues in the region. Uh, and so MAGIC, in many ways, is the child of the DMV EJ Coalition. But I'll pass the mic back to you, Vivek. Go ahead. Yeah, no, 100%. I think I first attended the symposium in 2017, maybe, and, and um, I felt that same energy that Bernice was talking about. And I think those early conversations you guys had about a DMV coalition, we're just recognizing that we were talking about parallels around the world. There are also deep parallels in our region, whether you are in Delaware or Virginia or Maryland or DC, we share common infrastructure. We share common industries. We got the CAFOs, the, if, if anyone doesn't know what that stands for, the concentrated animal feeding operations, like chicken farms, where they put 12,000 chickens in a 600 foot barn, absolutely inhumane highly polluting industry that, in my view, we need to be transitioning away from. We have those in common. They're in Maryland on the eastern shore. They're in Virginia on the coast. They're in Delaware, southern Delaware. The governments of our jurisdictions, they are talking to each other. They're often coordinating, often comparing notes. And so we saw an opportunity for communities to come together across our jurisdictions and to build power in a way that we couldn't necessarily do on our own in any one given jurisdiction. And so that is the dream of magic is communities coming together across our borders, um, unifying throughout our region and, and, and really advancing transformative changes that advance both environmental and economic justice in this moment of crisis. And I, I do see opportunities in the crisis because to make our way through this climate crisis we have a lot of work to do. There's a lot of building to be done. We need to build renewable energy infrastructure. We need to build regenerative 
models of farming to replace the extractive and destructive versions that are still commonplace right now. We need to build systems that reduce and eliminate waste. The list goes on and on. Dense, affordable, disaster-proof housing, public transportation. And so we want to see communities in our region taking the lead in accelerating that transition to a more sustainable economy. And the reason there's opportunities there is that there's, there's jobs in doing that. There's jobs, there's economic advancement. And we don't want to have a green economy or a um, post-carbon economy that reproduces the extractivism and the inequalities of, of the prior economy. We want to have an economy that's green and more equitable, that's green and that also creates opportunities for thriving and flourishing in places that have been left out, places that have borne the brunt of the poison of the economy that has come before. And so we're aiming as a region to seize those opportunities. Thank you for that, Vivek. And just for the audience, you know, we're going to have a lot of sessions at the symposium. We're going to have representatives who are members of MAGIC, you know, from Virginia, from Delaware, uh, from D.C., uh, from, from Maryland, they'll be presenting uh, at the symposium. And we're looking for more grassroots organizations to come join us more folks who work on the front line, the fence line to come join us and join us in this moment, because as Vivek mentioned, there's a lot of dollars out there, federal funding mm-hmm. out there. And mm-hmm. I like to say, you know, those who are at the front line, front line communities who are at the front line, you should be at the front of the line when it comes to the mm-hmm. money, because that's your money, right? Mm-hmm. And so whether it be the Inflation Reduction Act, the bipartisan infrastructure law, whether it be the Greenhouse Gas Reduction Fund and all these other pots of money out there, right? We're going to have workshops, um, grant writing workshops, so how you can get your money to get to your solutions. So that's an important part of this discussion as well. Now, Vivek, mm-hmm. you know, think about I just wanted the to emphasize Oh, yeah. yeah go, go, go ahead. Sorry. I, I love that about the front line being at the front of the line. I just want to observe. Tell me if you if this resonates with you, Sakobi. I feel like we are at a kind of turning point or a, a point of evolution in our environmental justice movement that historically, and this is true in the U.S. and globally, so often... EJ has been about saying no. It's been about saying no to poison, no to land grabbing, no to heedless destruction. And increasingly, we still have to fight these battles. I mean, I was in a community today that where their land is being ravaged by a rutile mine. You might not have ever heard of rutile. It's like a substance that makes things white. It goes into white paint, but the, okay. the mining is happening totally irresponsibly. And, and the communities, you know, they're trying to say no to the harm. And, and, and they're actually not saying 100% no to the mining, but they want it to be done more responsibly. Alongside those fights to say no, what I see more and more happening is opportunities to say yes. Opportunities to proactively envision what a more sustainable economy might look like, what solutions to the climate crisis can look like. I just want to emphasize what you said, which is that we are at a moment in American history where there are more resources available for communities to say yes and to build a different future than ever before. And so I, I'm excited about the symposium and I'm excited about what we can do across the mid-Atlantic region and, and across the world in terms of accelerating those positive visions of the future that are so badly, urgently necessary. No, no, you're exactly right, Vivek. I mean, I, I always like to say about the EJ movement. Someone say, oh, how can you do this work? Well, the movement's about hope. It's a hope-filled movement. The movement's about love, loving my family, love for my children, love for my, you know, future generations, right? The movement's about our shared family and shared humanity, right? 
And to do that, we have not just to be about stopping stuff. What is our vision for the day yeah. and the future? That's yeah. a vision of what do we want to see? So when mm-hmm. we're talking about building healthy, resilient communities, right? Having health infrastructure and creating jobs and creating opportunity, right? That's about the yes. And at the heart, mm-hmm. remember folks, those of you who don't know about the environmental justice movement, I like to say the environmental justice movement is the child of the environmental movement and the civil rights movement. That's one way to frame it. But if you look at the civil rights movement itself and we'll go to Dr. King, as you know, Dr. King was moving to talk more about poor people and economic mm-hmm. justice. You know, think about our speaker on Monday, our keynote speaker is Reverend Barber, Moral Mondays, mm-hmm. right? You know, he's mm-hmm. also been talking about what we need to do for poor people. And so how we address inequality and how we move to opportunity mm-hmm. is important. So the movement is just not about no, stopping stuff, reducing stuff. It's about, yes, what do you want? And what we want is safe and healthy housing. What we want is safe, clean water. What we want is healthy jobs, uh, living wage jobs. And that's the important thing about the movement. So it's not just about the harms, but what's about the benefits and how we can make sure we can get a return on investment that each person deserves, particularly those who've been used as a dumping ground, used as a sacrifice zone. So how we can flip that from a negative frame to a positive frame. And so I think that yes is very important, Vivek. And that's a yes that can be useful for what we do together in the States, right, in the Mid-Atlantic, but also could be a model for other parts of the country. And as we partner together with Namate and Magic with groups across the world, right? Indeed. My next question to you is like, in that same tone of yes, and what we can do together to build a brighter future, more resilient future, more just future. What are your future goals and aspirations for nominating? What do you see the organization's impacts? Where are you going in the next, you know, five years, the next 10 years? Because we're at about a decade. So I have been in a little bit of like a reflective mode, you know, like just taking stock of where have we come in the, in the last 10 years. And, and I do think Namathi and our partners, the communities we work with, our network members, we have gotten some important stuff done. I mentioned that revolutionary we have built this community of justice defenders in every country in the world. A big win globally was getting justice in the sustainable development goals. I don't know if the listeners have heard of that, but it's the framework for development that the United Nations adopted in 2015. And the framework before that from 2000 was called the Millennium Development Goals, and it didn't have any mention of justice or accountability or fairness. It was about laudable things like reducing child mortality, increasing girls' education, But it didn't mention justice or fairness or accountability. And our argument was that you can't improve people's lives if people can't exercise their rights. We need to think about development in a way that is also about justice. And people told us it was not going to happen. Sympathetic senior officials told us, no way, not going to happen. Governments don't want to frame development in those terms. They want to frame it in technocratic and economic terms. And we organized around the world in the countries where, where sort of swing states on how the the Sustainable Development Goals are going to get written. There are 17 Sustainable Development Goals. The 16th of the 17 commits to access to justice for all, which is a really important normative shift in terms of how we think about development. Anyway, I, I give that those as a couple of examples of significant wins that we've had, both in the countries where we work as well as globally. But the other thing that's been happening <laughs> in the last 10 years is that many of the challenges that we take on have been getting worse. When we were starting number D, the Paris Agreement had been adopted pretty recently, and I just would have hoped that we would be further along in terms of climate action by 2023. It is depressing the extent to which we are still burning the fossil fuels that are 
literally cooking our planet. When we started Namathis 2012, President Obama was in power. It felt like a moment where there was some energy around multilateralism. And in fact, that's what the Sustainable Development Goals were about. Since then, between Trump and Narendra Modi in India, Viktor Orban in Hungary, and Bolsonaro in Brazil, who, knock on wood, is out of power now, there's just been a wave of authoritarian and nativistic um, rulers who have set us back and backtracked on some of the fundamental liberties that people have shed blood to secure. And so that is humbling. It's like, yeah, we've made some progress. We've gotten stronger. Legal power plus people power can get some stuff done. But man, the world around us, in many ways, the challenges are even more dire than when we began. And so looking forward, I am hoping that we can continue to build power in a way that can really meet this moment. And on environmental justice in particular, we want to grow a strong global movement for environmental justice where each of us is knowing and using and shaping the law in our own places, fighting the no fights, you know, saying no to destruction, and also accelerating the yes, building the new sustainable economy that we need. And we want to be doing so in a way that's both deeply rooted in our own places, but also deeply connected with one another, because we do believe that these challenges cut across borders. And so we, our movement needs to cut across borders as well. One specific thing, and just give a little preview, I, I haven't talked about this publicly yet. So you, you heard it here first, is that you heard of the Highlander Institute, Jacoby? Have you ever heard of them? Yes. The Highlander Institute, 100-year-old institution, if, if any listeners haven't come across it, worth looking up. They are in Appalachia, in Tennessee, and they have yep. played an incredible role over the last century in seeding and supporting some of the most important movements, especially in the American South, for our country. And, you know, for example, John Lewis, the late congressman and civil rights hero, he first trained at the Highlander Institute. Rosa Parks, before she stood up in the bus, she had trained at the Highlander Center. Mm -hmm. um, so many of my heroes passed through that place, and it was a source of refuge and support and inspiration. And Ashley Henderson is the first Black executive director of Highlander. She's a member of our network, and she's been pushing us, all of us, to, to kind of envision what is that thing that we can do together that we could not achieve alone. And one of those things that I would love to see us build collectively is a kind of grassroots justice leadership academy that, in a way, almost like a global version of the Highlander Institute, where we are supporting and seeding and strengthening movements that combine legal power with people power, that accelerate social and environmental justice in many, many places around the world. And so that's one thing that I'm keen to be building with folks is a center for learning and training that can strengthen our movement all over the place. And one thing that we are piloting in the next couple months is a Legal Empowerment 101 course, which we're gonna do a hybrid version of, and we're gonna open it to our whole community. So this is gonna be a framework around how to combine law and organizing stories of success from all around the world. And when you go through it, you, you go through the content at your desk, but you are also connected to peers from around the world who are doing similar things, who you can learn from. And they, they may be in very different contexts from your own. It's going to be completely free. It's kicking off in September. And so if folks are interested in that, I would just invite everybody who's listening to join the Grassroots Justice Network, numathy.org. You'll find the link to it. If you're in the Mid-Atlantic, join MAGIC. We need you. We need everybody to be coming together to pursue environmental and economic justice 
in our community. And Magic has its own website, Mid-Atlantic Justice Coalition, and certainly come through to the symposium to learn more and, and meet some of our partners and members over there. Thank you for that, Vivek. So one last thing, a key takeaway, you maybe just did it, but if you just want to read it, one key takeaway for folks who attend your session, give them a little preview at the symposium. What is it? one key takeaway you want them to, to learn from the session? You mentioned this earlier, that sometimes the challenges can feel overwhelming. The climate crisis can feel overwhelming. Environmental injustice can feel overwhelming. I want people everywhere, including the ones who come to our session, to see a pathway forward. And I think there is one. I, I've seen it work in even some of the toughest places on earth. And it's about knowing law, using law, and shaping law. I would love for folks to see a little glimpse of what that pathway looks like and to feel empowered to do that work in their own places and also to do it in a way that feels connected and that can contribute to a global movement for environmental justice, which is what I fundamentally believe we need in order to win. One that goes from Maryland to Sierra Leone to Myanmar and everywhere. Thank you for that, fact. I want to you know, thank you again for just being here and, and sharing your experience and all the great work you're doing, Namate, the great work we're doing together. And it's just been exciting for me to see the work that you're doing and being a partner to you. Because again, I think, as you said, we have to collaborate. We have to partner. You talk about empowerment, we have more power together, right? So I just wanted to, again, just thank you for those inspiring stories. And then this really exciting and extraordinary episode for My Black Counts, your dedication to justice, empowerment, and environmental stewardship is truly commendable. And again, just been great to be able to work with you, you know, over these uh, years, particularly helping to grow magic. Your block counts. We want you to visit siege.center. That's C-E-E-J-H dot center. So this is again, my block counts, an environmental justice podcast dedicated to helping people know so they can grow and help things flow. And right now, we got to make sure that money, our money is flowing into our communities to get to that justice. Those who are at the front line, remember, should be at the front of the line. So thank you again for joining us. See you next time or hear me next time. Dr. Wilson out. You've been listening to My Black Counts. My Black Counts is sponsored by the Center for Community Engagement, Environmental Justice, and Health at the University of Maryland. Executive producer and host, Dr. Sakobi Wilson, with production assistance from Ariel Wharton. Technical producer, Kelly Avent. Additional information about My Black Counts can be found at ceejh.center or wypr.org. New episodes of My Black Counts are released each month. Please share and subscribe wherever you get your podcast and leave us a review.